heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 108, which along with verses 33 to 43 of Psalm 107 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, October the 2nd, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today, this Saturday. I hope you've had a blessed week, and I hope that, that you will have a blessed and restful weekend, but also filled with worship. <laughs> so today we're continuing our look at the life of Hezekiah, particularly in, in the matter of the, the king of Assyria coming to threaten him and to, to taunt him uh, and to cast aspersions on the God of the Israelites. And so that's in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 21 to 36. We're also continuing our look at the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 10, the first 13 verses, and in the Gospel of Matthew, the 8th chapter, beginning at the 18th verse and continuing through the 27th verse. So what we're going to hear is, remember yesterday, um, Hezekiah had prayed to the Lord. He had also asked Isaiah the prophet to pray to the Lord concerning the matter of the Assyrian potential takeover of Jerusalem. And so what we get here is is the end of that when, remember, Hezekiah had gone into the temple, laid out the letter that Sennacherib had sent him, and prayed over it. And then the word came from Isaiah that the Lord has heard you, and now we're going to hear the Lord's response. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. And this she, in this instance, is the, is the Assyrian Empire. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? So you might think that you're taunting Hezekiah, but, but you've picked a fight with somebody far different than that. You've picked a fight with the God of the universe. And so that's where the response will come from, is, is that, that you have picked on the wrong people because he will protect his people because of the covenant relationship that he has with them. By your messengers, you've mocked the Lord, and you've said, with my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I've felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its furthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters and dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. In other words, these are the claims of the Assyrian Empire that, that that were made already, which is where are these kings and where are these gods of all these nations that I have taken down? And so God's response is, okay, I hear you. I hear you. This is what you got to say, but I'm your huckleberry. He says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. I, not you, I, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. You think that your might did this? But I knew this from of old. In fact, I decreed it from of old. But now you've overstepped your boundaries. He said, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. 
Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I'll turn you back on the way to which you, by which you came. And this will be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. He said, look, you know, here's what's going to go. You go ahead and, and eat what grows of itself. In other words, it's kind of like a Sabbath year. Don't plant. Don't do any of that kind of stuff. And then the next year, do the same thing. And in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards. It's going to take some time before this yoke is removed from you, my people. And I think one of the things that we all need to see in this time where we're under the the sort of the global um, tyranny of a pandemic, and I'm not making value judgments one way or another about that, but I think we could all say that there's a tyranny caused by this pandemic. Whatever we agree with or disagree with about government policies, we're under the tyranny of a pandemic. And we need to be praying that God would release us from that and relieve us from that through our repentance and our turning again to him. And here the Lord says it's going to take a little while. It's going to take a couple of years. And in the third year, you're going to rejoice again. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I'll defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Um, He had destroyed Babylon, the king of Assyria. Sennacherib had destroyed Babylon. Um, Babylon, because he kept seeing that that all the intrigues and and rebellions were were starting there, and so he destroyed the city of Babylon and, and created the uh, the um, the palace at Nineveh, and made that his capital. Nineveh being the other way of saying it. So he he had done this in order that um, he might consolidate the empire. But the problem is the empire was actually a little too large to consolidate, and so. Here, what we get is God saying, no, you come this far, you will go no further. And and this battle that was anticipated then ends because the angel of the Lord comes and strikes down all these soldiers dead. And then the king says, well, I'm going to head on home then. That's not the end of the relationship. It's about 100 years before Assyria falls, but there's so much palace intrigue that goes on in these next 20 years or so. It's unbelievable. But But what you see here in this battle that never happens is the same thing that happens at Armageddon. Both sides come forward arrayed for battle, and then the end comes. But it means we need to constantly be aware and be prepared for that battle. We need to be ready to fight it, but then we need to be ready mostly for the Lord to fight the battle. But we need to be prepared. It's important that we always be prepared. God God is going to delay the fullness of of this deliverance, but it will come, is the promise. And so that in, in Matthew's gospel, remember Jesus has come down from the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount, and he's come into Galilee and into Capernaum particularly, and, and there he had been with 
Peter at his house. And so he sees a crowd around him, and he's just healed a huge number of people. We don't know how many. When he sees the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And what that means, he goes, go, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, go to the other side of the lake. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you better count the cost before you do this. This is not a life of ease if you want to follow me. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So he says, you've got to forsake everything. Is the kingdom the most important thing? Is it the only thing to you? Or is it just, okay, hey, give me a minute and I'll come back to you? No, he said the immediacy of the call requires an immediate response. No matter what the cost of that response is, you've got to follow now. And it's the same basic thing that he says to uh, the rich young ruler, is you've got to give up everything else and come and follow me. And he, here he says, you've got, to, you, you've got to not even care about that. Other people will, will bury him. But if you want to be in the land of the living, you need to come with me. Otherwise, let the dead bury the dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. I mean, there's this comparison, obviously, here to Jonah. Uh, in this passage that that remember Jonah when he's running from the Lord it, it gets on a boat and he falls asleep in the hold and the the great storm arises everybody else is in a panic Jonah's up there asleep and they have to come and wake him up and then he finally says it's all because of me that this is happening and so you, here's what you need to do you need to throw me overboard well Jesus is in a boat asleep while everybody else is in a panic as well. And so they come and they wake him up and they say, save us, Lord, for we're perishing. First, they believe that he can do something, which is admirable. After all they've seen, it's not surprising they would say that. But they make the truest statement they will ever make. Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Yep, that's the whole reason I'm here. You don't know how true that statement is. It has an immediate context, but it has a much bigger context than that in reality, fellas. I'm here to save you. You really are perishing. You will die in your sins, and you will never come back. You need me to save you. I'm glad you see that. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? What sort of man indeed? He is a God-man. The wind and the sea obey him because he's speaking in the power and the spirit of God. This is not the way this is going to end. So he speaks to the wind and the sea and they obey him because he is the creator of all things. He is the word which created all things. And so that word speaks to the first parts of his creation and tells them to cease and desist. And they obey. Indeed, two great questions back to back by the disciples Lord, save us, for we're perishing. And then, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? They made two remarkable observations, whether they're fully aware at this point or not. Two remarkable observations. You're on the way to faith if you see those two things with those eyes. In the epistle today, in in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our Father— he's talking about judgment here. He says, I want to save some. By what I do, I don't want to disqualify myself even 
So I've disciplined my body. Remember, that's the way it ended yesterday. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, which would have been the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, the water that comes from the rock. He said, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nonetheless, with many of them, most of them, sorry, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He said, you know, you can sing the song Amazing Grace through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. And it's grace that's going to get me home. But the thing is, he says, those people went through many dangers, toils, and snares as well, and they didn't get home. They didn't persevere and run the race to the end. And so most of them, God wasn't pleased with them, and so they were overthrown in the wilderness in spite of the fact that they saw so much of God's grace. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now what's the context of that? The context of that is is when they believe that Moses is not coming back down from the mountain after he's been up there 40 days and 40 nights receiving the Torah. They, they believe that, that Moses had died um, and that he wasn't ever coming back, and they needed somebody to replace Moses, and so they they um, demand that Aaron rise up and make us gods to go before us. And what they're asking for there is is the a replacement for Moses, one who will go before the Lord, and, and that they can get oracles through. So it's not it's not that they're trying to replace or overthrow God; they're trying to overthrow and replace Moses in this. But then what happens is they create idols, right? So they create the two golden calves. And that's the context of this. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, that word play in Hebrew can easily be interpreted as sexual immorality. So in other words, they began to have a great orgy because they're worshiping these old gods, the fertility gods. And so they, they play rather than worship. Those are two different things. He said, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And that's what that's referring to is this playing and he says, 23,000 fell in a single day. That's the day when the, when the Levites became the Levites, essentially, when they put them all to the sword. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Remember the fiery serpents in the wilderness, and Moses is, in, is instructed finally as far as how we're going to heal those who have not died, the ones who have been bitten by these fiery serpents. How are we going to fix that? And, and he says, affix a bronze serpent to a stick and hold it up, and everybody that looks on it will not die. Well, that's the same thing with Jesus. He is that which is affixed to a stick and held up. The stick is the cross. And what happens there is is that, that the first time they're being healed from these serpent bites by looking at a serpent. So with us, what are we being healed of? Sin. Sinful humanity. And so we look upon the man on that cross. And in that moment, we are saved in the same way through faith because we believe that that sacrifice is efficacious for us. He says, <clears throat> he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Remember, there, there's times when there's this murmuring that goes on and, and that murmuring then becomes an outbreak against Korodathan and Abiram, for instance, in their disobedience and their, their challenge of Moses, Aaron's leadership. They, they were Levites, actually. 
Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Those things meaningful today, he says, pay attention to those examples because they have meaning for us today. He said, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't think you're standing in your strength right now. If you're standing in your strength, you're in deep, deep trouble. I heard Gordon MacDonald, who was a great evangelical leader, um, who he was standing in line at some sort of an event, and he was standing there with other clergy, and somebody that he barely knew, he said, came up and asked him, said, Gordon, if, if Satan was going to get you in the next year, what would it be? And he said, my response to him was, you know, I don't have any idea. It's a good question, but the one place that I'm positive he wouldn't get me is in my relationship with my wife. He said a year later I was listening to talk radio, Christian talk radio, and people discussing the affair that I had had in that last year. He said, I thought I was strong there, and it actually, that was my strength. I wasn't standing in the strength of the Lord. He said, the place that I believe that I was strongest was the place that got actually attacked because I was the weakest. So if we think we have any strength, then we need to be careful about that. We need to understand that we have no strength of our own. We need to constantly rely upon him. We need to confess he could get me in seven million different ways if I'm not vigilant, if I'm not in prayer. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to men. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. Do we believe that? I mean, that that's really the crux of the matter, right, is, is that how do we live our lives? Uh, we live our lives constantly recognizing our own need for and dependence upon him. Any place that we think we have strength, we need to be careful. We need to be very careful about how we deal with what we believe to be strength in our lives. And so in all these lessons today, we need to recognize how fragile our faith is and how fragile our lives are. And we need to be utterly dependent upon Him in all things. We need to trust Him in all things. We need to have faith in all things, which means we need to be strong and courageous, but our strength and our courage is in Him, not in anything else.